Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you're all doing well. I was trying to think of something to be like, what are updates in my life for us to chat about? But I've really just been at home. So. <laughs> Have you been and I ha- doing anything fun? Like any fun activities at home or projects? I've been doing a lot of cross-stitching, so that's really fun. What's your I know cross-stitch? I did a really cool one that's like half a regular brain and then half of a galaxy brain. Oh my gosh, I've seen that on Etsy. It looks beautiful. I've seen one of You're those. You're so nice. Yeah. Thank you. It took me a really long time. And I keep meaning to photograph it and put it on Instagram, except for the fact that I framed it and it's a tiny bit crooked and I don't want to photograph it like that. <laughs> but I have to take it out of the frame and fix it. And I just haven't been able to find the mental energy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I totally understand, like... After working all day, I have very low mental energy to do simple tasks. It's so silly. It's in my bathroom, and every time I use the bathroom, I'm like, I should do something about that. And then I just don't. I'm sure it looks beautiful regardless of a crooked frame. You're very nice. I think maybe this will, like, force me to do it. I will have this done, and I will post a photo by the time this goes up, so I will have fixed it. I'm excited to see it. I'm going to use this to make me do it. What about you? What have you been up to? I've been following this YouTuber. Her name is Dana Alexa, and she is this amazing choreographer. And I was messaging um, our friend Sammy. So Sammy has been a co-host of Anna's when I was taking a break. She has. Yes. She is one of our good friends. And we were thinking about probably learning a choreography. So uh, I was watching Dana Alexa's choreography and I was sending it to Sammy. And I don't know about choreography videos that all of you have seen, but there are some where the people just seem like machines, where people are moving <laughs> so fast and their timing is amazing. And then when you look at how long the choreography was, in your brain you're like, okay, this is probably a 10-minute dance. But then you look at the timestamp and they've fit in all those moves in a minute and a half. And then your brain is totally like, what? <laughs> But yeah, I've been like trying to pick up one of her choreographies. So that's been like my challenge for myself recently is trying to like uh, learn one of her dances. And it's fun because it's challenging and then it kind of breaks the routine a little bit from work. Um, So I've been enjoying that. That's fun. That's a good side project. Yeah, it's been nice. I've been trying to learn those yoga balances. Oh my gosh. What are they called? Like, is there a... a... I have about 50% success on Crow. Yes, Crow. That's the one. And my next next battle, if you will, is called Hurdlers. Oh my god. Uh, If you all want to Google a picture, um, I cannot do it yet. Maybe one day. A long time in the future. Like, you, I can get my leg on my knee, and I can get it extended, but then you're supposed to balance on your hands with your back leg lifted, and I can't do that part. I looked at hurdlers online, and all I see are people (laughs) running and jumping over that obstacle. Doing actual hurdles? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, This is this is a yoga. Yeah, you're gonna have to put yoga poses. Oh my gosh, this is this looks tough, Anna. It's like you're balancing only on your arms, and your legs are in a ninety degrees angle, straight out. Yeah, so I can get that leg out and on my knee, which took a while, but I was pretty proud when I could do that. The thing where you then lift up your back foot, that's got to be magic. I can't do that. 
Oh my! I don't gosh. know how to balance that. That's amazing. So I just keep doing it, hoping one day maybe magically it will happen. I'm a tiny bit worried that I'm just going to smash my face <laughs> into the ground, but you're not that far above the ground, so I think it'll be okay. <laughs> Do you remember that? So Anne and I took an aerial yoga class once a couple of years ago. We did. Very fun. And I could not get myself <laughs> up on the, like, satin rope. <laughs> like, I just could not sit in it at first. And Anna's like, this is easy. Like, you can do this. Just, like, jump. It was not a disaster. You could 100% do it. You were great. I can't dance at all. I, we all have to have skills. <laughs> she did a backflip and a front flip. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But you had to definitely vocally coach me through that. It's scary because you're like, flip. It'll be okay. This thing will catch you. And at first, I was like, I don't know. And then I watched a bunch of other people do it, and I was like, all right, let's just wing it. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's some really exciting news that I really want to talk about. So a couple days ago, it was announced that Jeanette Epps, who was originally supposed to fly to the ISS in 2018, and it would have made her the first African-American to live on the ISS. However, she was abruptly removed from the mission, and NASA didn't actually provide a reason. However, she has been, it has been announced by NASA that she is going to fly on NASA's Boeing Starliner 1 mission. So that'll actually be the first operational crewed mission on Starliner. So that's really exciting for a whole bunch of other reasons, but this flight will officially make her the first African-American to live on the ISS. That is super exciting. And Jeanette Epps is a phenomenal, phenomenal woman. She worked for the CIA for almost seven years. I thought that was really cool. And she's going to be joining Sunita Williams and John Casada. Uh, on the ISS. What did they say when that's supposed to launch? Twenty twenty one. Yes, that'll launch in twenty twenty one. And she is a really cool woman. If you want to learn more about her, um, we actually did an episode about her. Henna, unfortunately, couldn't be here, but Sammy and I did an episode and we talked about her. Uh, check out episode thirteen, Space Heroes. Yes, definitely check it out. It's an op- awesome episode. I know she is from upstate New York, like me. Yay! Wonderful! I know, she's a cool lady. She is really cool. Um, Upstate New York pride. And they will be spending, it's a six month long mission on the ISS. They'll be spending six months on the ISS. So cool. I'm so happy for her. It was so devastating when she got removed from that mission with really no explanation. Yeah. It was devastating for me, and I was not part of it, so I couldn't even imagine what it was like to have been her oh definitely so really excited and she was part of the nasa 20th astronaut class which was announced back in 2009 so 2009 yeah so she's been waiting for her turn she's to been fly. an astronaut candidate for 11 it'll be 12 years by the time she flies yeah that's insane but i'm really excited for yeah her. really exciting awesome news tidbit anna thanks i was just super excited oh right are you ready to get into this i am do you want to introduce the topic of the day? I would love to, but should we introduce ourselves first? Yeah. When am I ever going to remember to do that? <laughs> yes. All right. I'm Henna. <laughs> You're Henna? <laughs> oh, God. Guys, it's been a long day. I'm Anna. And I'm Henna. And this is... But it, it is Rocket, Rocket Science. Science. All right. <laughs> Let's get going. All right, everybody. So our topic for today is gravity assist orbital maneuvers. And these are really nifty, and we're really excited to talk about them. The flow of the podcast episode will be a little different. So usually we'll talk about, we'll give a technical description, dive into the history, and then talk about the current and future side of the topic that we've chosen. But for this episode, we're going to go ahead and give a technical description about 
gravity assist maneuvers, aka slingshot maneuvers, and that's what I'll do. And then Anna will dive into um, some history and examples of spacecraft that have used them, and then also bring us into the present. Woo! Woo! All right. So, shall I dive in? Yeah, please explain slingshot maneuvers. I am ready. All right. So, I'm going to go ahead and take a step back and start with introducing a few terms regarding orbital dynamics. And the first one is trajectory. So the path the spacecraft takes is known as a trajectory. And there are a couple types of trajectories. For example, there's a translunar trajectory, which is a path a spacecraft takes from Earth to get to the moon. Then you have the interplanetary trajectory, which is like just like it sounds, a path that a spacecraft will take to go between planets. A good example is Voyager 2, which left Earth, and its destination was to get to Saturn. And this is a really good example for our topic today because Voyager 2 got a boost from Jupiter using a gravity assist maneuver, which I'll get into some more. And then the classic term orbit, um, which is just a circular or elliptical path around a planet or a star. Yeah. So like a circular orbit would mean that it's the same distance from the planet at all times. Exactly. Yeah, we're in elliptical orbit, it makes an ellipse. So there are certain points where it's farther away or closer. Beautiful. Yes. For example, the ISS is a circular orbit. That's right. And I believe it orbits at about 400 kilometers. I think it's from... 350 with a 51.6 degree inclination. Wow, wow, but I wow. Don't know. <laughs> but I don't know. Almost 400 kilometers. It is. I was right. <laughs> but I don't appreciate... <laughs> Our trivia goddess over here. Your tone. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my CV, my resume. (laughs) Fabulous. All right. So to talk about how to change orbital trajectories, we need to understand a few other terms. The first one being velocity. So velocity is actually defined by two components. One is speed and one is direction. And it's usually represented by an arrow when you're calculating physics and math problems. You'll just see an arrow and then you'll put a magnitude that defines speed with it, and then the arrow is a way of defining direction. And then you have delta v, which v is for velocity, and delta means change of. So for example, when you're changing orbits around the Earth, you need to know the change in velocity you'll need to accomplish to get from the old orbit to the new orbit. And delta v is a very important term when it comes to aerospace engineering. In industry, in government agencies, whenever you're figuring out how powerful your rocket engines need to be and the amount of propellant you need to carry, you'll have your engineers figure out the amount of delta V you need for entire mission. So what you'll do is you'll go off and calculate the delta V. You'll calculate a delta V budget, basically a sum of the maneuvers you're going to see over the course of the mission. So for example, as you're traveling further into the solar system, you'll need a lot of delta V to escape uh, to escape Earth's velocity, get into a transfer orbit from Earth to the destination planet, then get into a capture orbit of the planet that is your destination. Then you'll possibly use another transfer orbit um, if you want to go and circle around one of the planet's moons. So all those little transfers, as you're transferring from orbit to orbit to orbit um, and changing your trajectory, 
you'll have little sums of delta Vs that you'll get from using a boost from your rocket engines. Yes. Or your exactly. spacecraft engines. So delta engines. V is actually... Oh, sorry. Uh, from Or from your spacecraft engines. Yeah, exactly. Delta V is actually one of the terms in the rocket equation. Exactly. So you'll take the delta V amount and you'll put that as an input into the Tsiolkovsky rocket equation. And Anna and I have talked about this in our previous episodes. Um, but you'll put it as an input into the Tsiolkovsky rocket equation, and then that'll be used to determine the amount of propellant you'll need for your rocket engines. Yeah, and then you can actually, if you have multiple stages, you can chain them together. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Tsiolkovsky. Thank you. Yes. So Tsiolkovsky is one of our fathers of rocketry, and you can learn more about him in the fathers of rocketry episode that we have. Number, give me a second. Ten. Episode ten. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a second. You don't have all of our episode numbers memorized. (laughs) I'm sorry. Excuse me. I had to kick it out so I could keep the ISS orbit in there somewhere. (laughs) I take back that trivia goddess title I gave you. (laughs) You can't. It's too late. It's already on my resume. (laughs) Crap. Um, so if you're curious about different delta V values, I would encourage you to just go to Google and you can look up uh, delta V values required to escape and enter different planets using a Hohmann transfer, which is a orbital transfer maneuver that you'll use. You can look up a table of the different delta Vs and you'll see that for planets that are further away, the delta V uh, amount will increase. Cool. So essentially, you just need a larger delta V to get to different planets. Is that the total delta V of all the different maneuvers? It's actually the delta V that's required to get into the Hohmann transfer ellipse that will get you to your destination. When you have a spacecraft and you're getting and you're flying to Mars versus you're flying to say Jupiter, if you're flying to Jupiter, you're going to enter a different Hohmann transfer than you would for Mars. And the home and tran- and in order to enter the home and transfer to Jupiter, you're going to have you're going to require more delta V to get into that elliptical orbit where you have Earth at one point of the orbit and then you have your destination at the other part of the elliptical orbit. Gotcha. And the farther the planet away, the farther the planet is away, the larger the elliptical orbit, and so the larger the delta V. Exactly. Gotcha. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. A huge problem that we deal with as engineers in the aerospace industry is how do we relieve the amount of delta V? Because the more delta V you have, the more propellant you need. And the more propellant you need, the more mass you need to carry, the more mass you need to carry, the more uh, expensive your spacecraft is. Oh, yeah. It just compounds because you need more propellant because you need more propellant. You need a bigger spacecraft because you need a bigger spacecraft. Now you need more propellant and you're just in like a circle. Exactly. Exactly. So to relieve the amount of delta, total delta V, you can take advantage of gravity assist maneuvers, aka Woo! slingshot orbital maneuvers. Yep. What a fun name. Yes, super fun. You could also take uh, advantage of O-Birth maneuvers to relieve delta V, but we'll save that for another episode. We'll focus on gravity assist maneuvers for now. Um, so what specifically does gravity assist mean? So a gravity assist is when you fly by a planet and let the planet's gravity and relative motion around the sun affect the path and velocity of the spacecraft in an effort to save fuel. 
So you can fly past a planet or a moon and have an exchange of orbital energy. So going back to this definition, I mentioned relative motion to the sun. So what do I mean by that? Well, these large planets are also orbiting the sun. It's really easy to think that when I say a spacecraft is flying by a planet and taking advantage of the planet's gravity, it's really easy to think that that planet is stationary in your mind. I've had trouble with this, but you have to realize that the reason why this works is also because that planet is moving. That planet has angular momentum. I was, a very long time ago, I was trying to work out a orbital mechanics problem, and I was talking to a professor or a teacher of mine, and I was like, why is everything moving? <laughs> and I just remember he looked at me and went, well, that would be the point. <laughs> right, because if the planet's not moving, you can't take advantage of the relative motion and no. speed up your spacecraft. You cannot. But it makes it really tricky and confusing. Yeah, it is confusing. So in order to understand this concept, it's really important to zoom out and like mentally imagine the entire solar system. Picture the sun. Yeah. Picture all the planets orbiting around it. And give these planets motion in your brain. Make sure when you're visualizing them, they're not moving at snail speed. And then this will help you with understanding this concept as I get into yeah, it more. You can also find a GIF on the internet if your imagination isn't that good. <laughs> As I've done in the past. <laughs> yeah, I have to. I was like, wow, you're really asking a lot of everybody. <laughs> YouTube is your friend when it comes to learning. <laughs> yeah, really, though. Really. Yeah. Um, all right, so... The spacecraft speed will increase as it comes closer to the planet and decrease as it leaves the gravitational influence of the planet. To increase the speed of a spacecraft, the spacecraft will fly with the planet's motion, acquiring some of that planet's orbital energy in the process. And to slow down, the uh, spacecraft can do the opposite, actually. The spacecraft can fly against the movement of the planet to transfer some of its own orbital energy to the planet. Okay, I have a question. Yes. How does that work with conservation of energy? So that's a good question. So we're all we're talking about how in the grand scheme of things, the conservation of energy is maintained. A good way to think about this is, say you're a bicyclist, and I have read this example elsewhere. You're a bicyclist and you're biking down a valley. So you're starting at the top of the hill and you're biking down the valley and we typically talk about the gravitational influence of a planet as a gravitational well. Yeah. So as you're biking down the valley, you'll notice that your speed will increase and it'll give you a boost as you start biking up the valley, right? Um, mm -hmm. When you pass the dip of the valley. And then as you're biking up, you have a have an increase of speed, but then you slow back down again. So your overall energy from start to finish, that overall energy is conserved. But because of that gravity well, and in that in this example with the bicyclist, because of that valley, you have that increase in speed for that for that moment as you're as you're biking down and back up. So there's gotcha. a transfer of momentum in that period of time as, when you're around that planet. Gotcha. I'm also imagining that to speed up planet would technically slow down a little bit but it would be so small because the difference in mass between the object and the planet is so huge that you probably wouldn't even be able to see it as a blip yes 
Anna, so this actually warns us to define energy. So energy is defined by mass and speed. And when you look at all the planets and the spacecraft, the mass is going to pretty much stay the same. But the what we want to see is in the conservation of energy equation, we want to see what the how the speed changes. So we know that when a spacecraft flies by a planet, when it's flying by to gain speed, it's going to get faster. And to maintain conservation of energy, the planet is going to slow down. But because the planet is so massive, we're not going to see a huge change in its speed. It's going to be a very small difference in speed. And we won't really see it because of the energy component. The energy component of the planet is primarily defined by its huge mass. So it's going to be a very minuscule amount of speed change. Neat. It's super neat. Yep. Thanks, Newton. <laughs> Thank you, Newton. And so let's see. Where was I? Sorry, I didn't mean to throw you off. Oh, yeah. And then now we just get into another example. So when we're talking about transferring um, energy and you're like, wait, how? I still don't get it. Why does a spacecraft get faster? Well, I'll go through two examples. Um, so one is one is a rather like one is more of a common terrestrial Earth example. And then I'll bring it back to how it can relate to space for us lay people. <laughs> All right. So let's think about how you're standing at a, uh, let's say you're standing at the end of a street and a car is coming at you. You throw a baseball at the car. Your baseball has a speed. It has um, a speed of, let's say, 10 kilometers an hour towards a speeding car, which is coming at you at 40 kilometers per hour. Um, for at your point where you are stationary, when that ball bounces off the car, it will now have a speed of 90 kilometers, of, kilometers an hour relative to your stationary spot that you threw it from. Because you throw the ball, it has 10 kilometers per hour, and it comes back. And because of the speed that that car is coming back at you with, you have 10 plus 40 plus 40, 90 kilometers per hour. And this is, a, this is a simplification, but this is to explain that transfer of kinetic energy because this is what happens when, um, with the gravitational influence. So let's take this example and now let's think about the planets and how a spacecraft is going at a planet. So your planet is moving, your spacecraft is moving, and as you're moving by this planet, there is a transfer of that energy, but this is through gravity and the relative motion of the planet around the sun. You have momentum that is transferred from the object that has a lot of momentum to the object that doesn't have so much. And so the object with a lot of momentum is the planet. The object that doesn't have a lot is your spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Yes. Gotcha. And that's in part because momentum is mass times velocity. Correct. And so your planet will always win because it weighs a kajillion times more for a technical term. Yes. <laughs> exactly. A kajillion times more. 
I was like, what's a lot? (laughs) Yeah, but like, Anna, thanks for explaining that. It's really important to understand that momentum is MV, mass times velocity. And that's right. The larger planet will have more momentum because it will have more mass than your puny little spacecraft. Yeah, and I think it's technically because I know somebody is going to say something about it. Yeah. Um, Angular momentum, which is kind of what we're looking at here. Angular momentum is MVR, so it's your mass times your velocity times your radius. Yes. I know that. We know that. Please don't yell at us. (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) Radius from the object that you are orbiting. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, Doesn't matter. The planet still weighs so much that it's always going to win. Exactly. And then if you still don't get it, which is totally understandable, this is a podcast. I am not showing you a picture. Everything is definitely better explained with pictures. I'm this gonna, is really confusing. Yeah, it's a very confusing topic. Um, I'm going to go ahead and dive into another visualization, uh, which is, so another visualization is by a classic physics experiment that you'll see in class. Uh, And this is an experiment that is used to explain gravity. So this experiment describes the fabric of space. So how does this work? Imagine that you have a huge hula hoop, a giant one, and you have the spandex material that you have pulled taut over the hula hoop, and you've clamped the spandex material down around the hula hoop. So now you just have um, a hula hoop that's in front of you with this top material over it. Now place a marble in the center of that spandex material. So this marble that you're putting in the center of the fabric is a heavy marble. You're putting a big heavy marble in the center of the fabric. So it's really dipping down into the fabric and the fabric is curving around it. That's a really great way to visualize the fabric of space. When you are trying to picture the gravitational influence around a planet, it's really important to understand that, you know, space curves around this planet. So now let's take a small marble. Let's say that that big fat marble that's in the center of the fabric is Earth. Now let's take a small marble and let's just um, slide that marble onto the fabric. That marble, will, the small one, will start circling around Earth. And as it gets closer and closer to that heavy marble in the center, it, it'll go faster and faster. So where the space is curved more, where the fabric is curved more, when you're closer to that more massive object, you'll move faster around that object. I also think of, do you ever see those things that are like funnels that you can drop a coin into? I was just thinking that, yes, when you're at the mall and... Yeah. Yes. And you... And so... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Keep going. No, no, you... Um, And then you have that, like, in order to drop a coin that... Or no, it's the coin holder is parallel to you, so you're dropping the coin so it's facing you, and it'll start circling round and round the funnel. Yeah, and then at the top, it's going slow, and then as the circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller, it goes faster and faster and faster. Exactly. Such Because it's way trying to, to it. maintain, preserve angular momentum. Yes, exactly. Good stuff. Good stuff. So that's a good way to understand, you know, the fabric of space and the gravitational influence of space. A massive planet. So now let's take both of those marbles off the fabric. 
And this is gonna, the next thing I want to say is going to help visualize gravity assist maneuvers, hopefully. <laughs> so now you're taking both of the marbles off the fabric. Now at one end, I'm going to carry the big fat marble and at uh, another point of the hula hoop, Anna's, Anna's going to carry the small marble, but she's not going to be standing right next to me. She'll stand uh, 90 degrees away from me. She'll stand like a quarter of the hula hoop away from me. And we'll both throw our marbles into the center. Not throw, we'll slide them in. When you do that, they will have some speed. If you were to watch this, you'll see that the small marbles, marbles trajectory will change when it gets closer to the fat marble because as the marble's moving, there's a transfer of energy and then it'll come around the other side of the marble faster because okay. of that immediate change in transfer and kinetic energy. So you've got the big marble. Yes. I've got the small marble. Yes. We're both standing at the edge of this hula hoop spandex thing. Exactly. Device. Glorified trampoline, if you will. Yes. Beautiful. Glorified trampoline. It's a trampoline. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And then you and I are both going to slide our marbles into the middle such that they're at a 90 degree angle to each other. Exactly. Okay. And then when my marble, I have the baby marble, Mm -hmm. gets close to your large marble, because the large marble is indenting the fabric, the little marble will go fast around it. Yes. It'll get attracted. The little marble will get attracted by the indent to the big marble. It'll start going close. As it gets closer to it, it'll go faster and faster. But then as it's, but it still has a direction that it still has a velocity that is propelling it around the marble and then you'll see it go faster away from that marble the big marble do you ever the way i think about this is if you are on a trampoline and somebody who is heavier than you also gets on the trampoline you will like almost fall into the dent of the trampoline around them yes that's right or if you're in like a bounce house or something yes exactly it's a good way to imagine like how the influence of gravity works fascinating so I have never heard yeah. or done this example, and I kind of want to. Yeah, we should. So there's a bunch more math that goes into it. I have definitely simplified it with these visualizations. Um, you know, there's a lot more math surrounding the conservation of energy, uh, transfer transfer in orbital energies, um, and you know, like understanding angular momentum. But I wanted to provide some examples to set the groundwork so you can start thinking about orbital mechanics. It's a super cool field. I've loved all my classes in it. And I figured it would be, these examples would be like a fun way to introduce why gravity assists are so important and why they're called slingshots. You're literally slingshotting a small spacecraft around a big planet and using that big planet to your favor. Fascinating. Yeah. I know, it's so cool. Awesome, that was really cool, Anna. Thanks, Anna. I now really want to go slide marbles on a trampoline. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> say, I don't own a hula hoop. I hear... <laughs> do you? I, I think my parents do. I, th- I think I Not because they own a hula hoop, because they own our hula hoops from when I, my brother and I were kids. <laughs> I think this is a reason why we should go to a trampoline park after the quarantine. <laughs> I think we have to. Have you ever been to, like, Sky Zone? So fun. Oh my gosh, yes. A bunch of years ago. It was a lot of fun. I also haven't gone in years. Yeah. That was great. 
Thanks, Anna. I'm super excited to hear about different types of spacecraft that have used uh, gravity assists. Me too. I'm excited to talk about it. But do you want to take a little break first? Yes, let's do it. I'm babysitting a dog, and it sounds like he just got up, and I gotta make sure he didn't get into anything. <laughs> sounds good. You go take care of Babysitting, <laughs> dog sitting, whatever. You know what I mean. Yeah, same thing, right? <laughs> So, welcome back. Yay, welcome back, everybody. The dog I am dog-sitting is perfectly fine. He just laid down, and I think he must have slammed the wall when he laid down. (laughs) And we went for a long walk before this, so I could... He's looking at me now. (laughs) I'm talking about you! (laughs) So I could tire him out, and I think it was pretty effective. Fabulous. He's napping. I know. Something I would like to be doing right now. But, no, I'm lying. I'd much rather be recording this podcast. I can nap anytime. <laughs> but naps are really nice. And also, we're... They are really nice. We're recording this episode on a Saturday, and Saturdays are a great day to eat some lunch and then just take a nap. <laughs> I know. So nice. All right. Anna, I am really excited to hear about some history. I had a lot of fun with this one. I didn't know what I was going to be able to find out there, but there's a lot of cool info. I'm ready. Let's go. Awesome. Let's do this. So the very first mention of a slingshot maneuver was in a paper written in 1938 by this guy's name that I meant to look up, that I looked up how you say it, and I already forgot, so I'm going to look up how you say it again. (laughs) I can't believe how overcast it is today. I know. I actually don't mind, though. I know, because you know what it means? It means fall is coming. It does. It also means that my apartment's getting a little bit cooler. Ooh, yeah. It's been toasty in here. I'm really excited for some Starbucks drinks. Me too. <laughs> I'm excited. I have coconut oil on my counter and it's just been liquid for weeks. Like, oh it's my not. Gosh. Yeah. That's <laughs> so hot. And also because your apartment is a couple floors up, so heat rises. I'm in a basement apartment and it stays cool in the summer. That's nice. I'm on a fourth floor, so it's not terrible, but it gets a little toasty in here. Yeah. All right. So the very first mention of a slingshot maneuver was in a paper written in 1938 by Yuri Vasilovich Kondratyuk. Kondratyuk. That looks and sounds correct to me. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go with that. I can't even even the pronunciation again. Who was a Soviet engineer and mathematician. Just as a quick side note, when I was looking into this paper, we need to do an episode about this guy because he is fascinating. Let's do Yuri it. Yuri Kondratyuk. I know. Yuri Kondratyuk isn't his real name. He had to change it to hide from the Bolsheviks after the Russian Revolution. Oh, dang. I know. His, first, his real first name is Alexander. Back to the paper. It was titled, To Those Who Will Be Reading, and then in brackets, This Paper, End bracket. In order to build, start bracket, an interplanetary rocket. End bracket. <laughs> what a title. So creative. I don't know what the brackets are about. I don't know if that's a translation thing. Yeah. It was originally written in Russian. And while it was published in 1938, Kondratyuk originally wrote it in 1918-1919. I was looking for the original of this paper because I was intrigued and wanted to read it. NASA apparently translated this paper into English from the original Russian 
I was trying to find it, but all I could find was, uh, in, in quotations, NASA history newsletter that was dated from October 1st, 1965. I linked it in the sources because it's cool. Yeah. And it mentions the paper as something, and again, in quotations, NASA historians and their clientele should be interested in. <laughs> Which, not would be interested in, might be interested in, should be interested in. Come on, NASA. So, like, 30 years after the paper's published... It has a mention in a NASA newsletter. Yeah, because they translated it. Yeah. But what made me laugh more than anything is that they said should be interested in. They weren't like, you might be interested in this, or you you could be interested in this. They're like, you should be interested in this. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not a NASA historian. <laughs> I know. That made me laugh. <laughs> that is but- funny. In his paper, Kondratyuk discusses how a spacecraft traveling between two planets could be accelerated at both the beginning and end of its trajectory. And he calls out using the planet's moons, which I don't think is necessary. You can use other planets. But at this point, he may not have known that. Yeah, could be. I don't blame him. This was 1919. (laughs) While Kondratyuk's paper is dated later, there was another published paper earlier in 1925 by Frederick Zander titled Problems of Flight by Drip Propulsion, colon, Interplanetary Flights. So Xander's paper was published earlier, but Kondratyuk's was dated earlier. So that's why I listed it first. Makes sense. Yeah, I thought so too. Xander was a scientist and engineer, also in Russia. He designed the first liquid-fueled rocket to be launched in the Soviet Union, and it's called GIRD-X, G-I-R-D-X. That was neat. Oh, he designed the first liquid rocket. Oh, for Russia. Very cool. Yeah, to be launched in the Soviet Union. Yeah, not the first one, period, but the first one to be launched in the Soviet gotcha. Union. Gotcha. Because we also yeah. did, we did a Fathers, Back to the Fathers of Rocketry episode plug. Um, we <laughs> talked about um, Goddard was the first one to design a liquid-fueled rocket in the U.S. Yeah, I think period? Yes, Yep. Awesome. All right. In his paper, Xander discussed gravity assist and its potential for supporting interplanetary travel. And then just for reference here, because I was curious, Prohibition started in the U.S. in 1920. And then the first four-way, three-color traffic light was installed in 1920 in Detroit, Michigan. They figured out the gravitational (laughs) slingshot. They figured out the gravitational slingshot before they installed the first four-way traffic light. That's just so amazing. Like... During this time, they're trying to install stop-and-go lights. And then at the same time, you have these engineers and scientists figuring out how to use other planets to save fuel. I know. And then also at the same time, trying to figure out liquid-fueled rockets. It's incredible. That blew my mind. I was like, wait, wait, wait. They're still trying to figure out how to make the roads not a lawless wasteland. (laughs) And somebody's got the gravitational slingshot on lock? Like, that blew my mind. I was like, all right. It also blew my mind that I don't think... They they didn't even know if space travel had was possible or something we were ever going to do. And they had already figured this out. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And we've talked about this in previous episodes where... Uh, where we talked about the sharing of knowledge across the world. Because back then, you know, we didn't have, like... The internet, the internet or phones that were really reliable. Yeah, and it's really cool to see how at different parts of the world, um, liquid field rockets were being developed, gravitational slingshot theory was being developed, and it's cool how this was happening in different parts of the world, and there was no 
quick exchange of information. Like it was all coming no. to different people at the same time. It's really neat. Mm-hmm. All right. Skipping ahead to the maneuver in action. The first man-made vehicle ever to complete a gravity assist maneuver was a Soviet probe Luna 3. Luna 3 was part of the Soviet Luna program, which took place after the flight of Sputnik, but before the first human spaceflight of Yuri Gagarin. On October 4, 1959, Luna 3 launched from the Baikonur Cosmodrome, located in Kazakhstan, but it's actually leased to Russia. I don't know. I thought that was cool. That's I think really it's still leased to Russia. I think it's leased to Russia until 2050 or something. I had no idea that was the thing. I didn't either until I was <laughs> researching this. Because I was like, where? I was like, this is located in Kazakhstan? But now I get it. You learned so much doing this podcast. <laughs> we learned so much. <laughs> right? I know. So the goal was to take pictures of the far side of the moon. And this would be the first time humans had ever seen it. And if you're wondering why we can only see one side of the moon from Earth, that's actually a really good question. That's why, you, uh, what is it? Like, songs always refer to the dark side of the moon. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the reason is we can't see it is because the moon is tidally locked to the Earth. And this occurs when an orbiting object always has the same face towards the object that it is orbiting. This is called synchronous rotation and occurs because... In this case, I'm going to use the Earth and the moon as an example. The moon takes just as long to rotate around its own axes as it does to complete an entire orbit around the Earth. As a result, the same face of the moon is always facing the Earth. If you're having trouble picturing that in your head, I don't blame you. (laughs) There's a lot of really good GIFs out there about this. And I'm actually going to link to the Wikipedia page in our sources because it has a whole bunch of really good gifts to help you picture this. But as a fun fact, Pluto and its moon Charon, or Sharon, are both tidally locked to each other. So, where did these gravity assists come from? Perfect question. Great timing. After passing by the dark side of the moon to fly back to Earth, Luna 3 performed the very first gravity assist maneuver. The maneuver allowed Luna 3 to adjust its trajectory in orbital plane using the moon's gravity just enough so that the probe would fly over the northern hemisphere and pass over Soviet ground stations where it could transmit down the images it took. That's really cool. Right? I know. I thought so too. And then, again, crazy side note here, digital cameras did not exist. The images were taken on film, developed, fixed, dried, and exposed only to then be scanned by a special light beam so they could then be transmitted down. All of this happened on the probe. (laughs) My gosh, they had like a photo room on the probe? They literally, yeah, had this probe that would take the images, automatically develop them, fix them, dry them, and expose them, and scan them. That's amazing. A dark room. It's called a, what is it, the dark room? Yeah, Yeah. they literally had like a mini automatic dark room on this probe. (laughs) That's incredible. I read, it didn't even occur to me when I was thinking about this. I was like, yeah, 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 you take images, you scan them now, and that happens all the time. No, 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 no. <laughs> we didn't have that technology yet. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that blew my mind. That literally blew my mind. But back to gravity maneuvers. There's been a bunch of spacecrafts over the years that have used gravity assist. I'm not going to cover them all. But I chose two that I think are really cool and important. Skipping ahead to 1973, we have Mariner 10, which was a NASA probe. 
Mariner's main goal, unsurprisingly, was to explore the atmosphere, if there was any, we weren't sure at this point, of Mercury. In order to meet, in order to reach Mercury, Mariner needed to use a gravity assist, but not around the moon or Earth, around its neighbor, Venus. For context, Mercury is about 48 million miles, or 77 million kilometers from Earth at its closest point. Venus, on the other hand, is, is the closest planet to Earth, and is only about 25 million miles, or 38 million kilometers from Earth at its closest point. So it's a little bit less than half the distance. Mariner 10 launched on November 3rd, 1973 and on its way to Venus, took images of Comet C-1973E1 Kohutek. I don't know, fun side note. It'll come mm-hmm. back later. And on February 5th, 1974, it began returning images of Venus to Earth. I was like, three months, that's pretty fast. Wow, that is fast. I know. Mariner 10 took the first picture where the day-to-night terminator of Venus was visible as a white line. Um, what is a day-to-night terminator? What does that mean? That's a really good question. So a terminator or twilight zone is the moving line that divides the daylight side and the dark side of a planetary body. So if you look at pictures, you can um, see, like, if you look at Earth from space, or if you even just see animations of different, of the Earth, you'll see that part of it's in a shadow and part of it's light, and there's that markation line between... I don't know, the light half and the dark half? Yes. That would be the Terminator line. That's right. Like whenever you're, it's a common desktop image when you're looking at your desktop backgrounds. Yeah. You'll see the classic Earth example, but then you'll see like this ring of light um, and then you'll see like a dark side. Yeah, exactly. So that, I don't know, the divider between the two is the Terminator line. But yes, it is a very common computer background. <laughs> So, using Venus's gravity to speed up, Mariner reached its closest point to Mercury on March 29, 1974. Mariner 10's photos showed a moon-like surface covered in craters and ridges, and then radiometer readings suggested nighttime temperatures of minus 297 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 183 Celsius, and maximum daytime temperatures of 369 degrees Fahrenheit, or 187 Celsius. Wow. Wow. I know. And that was the first information about Mercury we had really ever gotten as a human race. I know. It blows my mind. And that yeah. was only in 1974. That wasn't that long ago. Exactly. Only in 1974. And Mercury is so far away. Like, it's just cool to think about how we were able to send a probe that far and successfully. Yeah. It's also the farthest planet from the sun. That's right. Just as a side note. However, in certain orbits, it gets really close to the sun. It's really crazy. You should check it out. Mercury's a cool planet. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, Mariner 10 proceeded to leave Mercury behind, loop around the sun, and head back to Mercury, which it flew by again on September 21st, 1974, where it took images of the southern polar region. And then Mariner 10 flew away, never to return to Mercury again. Psych! Actually, that's not true at all. Mercury 10 actually performed a third and final flyby. However, due to issues with the tape recorder and data reception restrictions, only the middle quarter of the images were received. Did you like... I know. Did you like my dramatic twist? It was so dramatic. I was sitting on the edge of my seat, and then I fell off my seat. (laughs) I had this... When I was in high school... This is such a tangent, but I think it's funny. 
we had, we would celebrate Pi Day, so March 14th. Yes. And then every morning we would have morning announcements on like a TV and it would be like the AV journalism club that would do the announcements. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Um, and they would play an advertisement for the Pi Day Pi Memorization Competition. And I just remember this one math teacher and his tagline was, you'll have your whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. For the Pi Day Memorization Contest, which I never participated in. But I did always go to watch. Fabulous. So you had your whole seat, but you only needed the itch. <laughs> <laughs> Mariner 10 was truly a ping pong ball going back and forth, back and forth. Amazing. Yeah. I was reading that and I was like, oh, that's cool. It does one fly fly. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really neat that it does two. And then I was like, actually, just kidding. It does three. <laughs> it did a lot of stuff. It's incredible. It's like, it's amazing how understanding the physics of planets can help benefit our engineering so much. It's really neat. And then on March 24th, 1975, Mariner 10 had its last contact with NASA, after which it depleted its propellant supply used for attitude control. And I'm assuming it eventually deorbited and burned up somewhere, or maybe it's still out there. But in summary, Mariner was the first spacecraft to study Mercury, return data on a long-period comet, explore two planets in a single mission, so this would be Venus and Mercury, return to its target after the first encounter, that would be returning to Mercury. It actually returned to Mercury after its first encounter twice. Use the gravity of one planet to reach another, so Venus to get to Mercury, and cherry on top. It was the first probe to use solar wind as a means of orientation during flight. I didn't even talk about that. That's incredible. Yeah. Mercury, Mariner 10 was really <coughs> impressive. Super impressive. Yep. And then as Hannah mentioned earlier... Utilizing gravity assist allowed Mariner to utilize less fuel, which in turn prevented the need for a larger rocket. Yeah, that's why gravity assists are so helpful. They I know, save such cool mass. stuff. Super cool. And a lot of money. And then to finish off the episode, I'm going to talk about a satellite that is still in the middle of its mission, Bepi Colombo. All one word. Bepi Colombo, which gets its namesake from Italian scientist, mathematician, and engineer Giuseppe, nicknamed Bepi Colombo. Colombo, also referred to as the grandfather of the flyby, is the one who suggested that if the first flyby point was chosen carefully for Mariner 10, it would be able to have a second encounter with Mercury. He was right, and Mariner 10 did exactly that, as we just talked about. Awesome. Really cool. So to commemorate him and his contributions to astronautics, ESA, the European Space Agency, named their Mercury mission about him. In addition to this, ESA also awards a Colombo Fellowship each year to a European scientist working in the field European scientist working in the field of astronautics. And then also asteroid number 10387 was also named in his honor. Beautiful. I know. Bepi Colombo, as you maybe could already have guessed, is also going to explore Mercury. That's part of the reason why they named it after him. <laughs> it's a joint project between ESA and the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA. And it's executed under ESA leadership. Super cool. Love the international collaboration. I do too. So many good ones. Straight from the ESA website, the objective of Bepi Colombo is, and I just quoted it directly, study and understand the composition, geophysics, atmosphere, magnetosphere, and history of Mercury, the least explored planet in the inner solar system. So I dug into that. Only Mariner 10 and Messenger, which is another NASA probe, have visited or flown by Mercury to date. 
That's amazing. And that's yes. really exciting that we're sending another one there. I know. I thought so too. Um, it consists of two individual orbiters and a transfer module. The MPO, or Mercury Planet Orbiter, which will create a map of the planet. The MMO, the Magnetospheric Orbiter, will examine Mercury's magnetosphere. And the MTM, the Mercury Transfer Module. I'll talk about that in a second. Wow. So it's one probe that has multiple orbiters as a part of it that'll be released. detached, released, released yes, from the probe. Exactly. Exactly. And I will talk about that in just a second. Sweet. Bepi Colombo launched on October 20th, 2018, and on an Ariane 5 ECA from the Guiana Space Center in French Guiana, which is located in South America. On April 10th, 2020, it completed its first of nine planned flybys. This one was of Earth, where it gathered images and used Earth's gravity to adjust its trajectory. Nine flybys? Yeah. So it did one of Earth. From here, it will also complete two flybys of Venus, if it will use its gravity to help it reach Mercury, where it will c- complete the final six flybys, oh totaling nine. Oh, we thought yeah. Mariner 10 had a party. I know. I know. And it did. But Maria- <laughs> Bepi Colombo is having an even larger party. <laughs> a banquet, if you will. <laughs> it is currently planned to reach Mercury in late 2025, upon which the MTM, or the transfer module I mentioned, will separate from the two other orbiters, the MPO and the MMO. The transfer module will break (laughs) off. These two will go into a polar orbit around Mercury, which means it will pass above or close to above both of the planet's poles. From there, the MPO, the Mercury Planet Orbiter, will separate, lower lower its altitude, and enter its own orbit. The current plan is for observations to continue for about a year, but there's the possibility of extension. Cool. So that's all I had. That's a really cool mission, and I'm really excited to right? see yeah to see how it works out. I am too. I'm really psyched. All right, if you liked our podcast, if you want to learn more about us, you can find us on Instagram at but it is rocket science. You can find us on Twitter at but it is RS. You can also go to our website, but it is rocketscience.com. If you want to contact us, if you want to give us ideas for new episodes, if you liked this episode and you want to let us know, if you just want to give us a holler, we have a contact us form on our website and you can use it to shoot us an email. We love hearing from all of you. Like we said last time, it still blows both of our minds that there are people who listen to this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We love getting the emails and reading all of We do. Mm-hmm. We love hearing from all of you. And then if you really want to make our whole week, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would mean a lot to us. It would Please. also help other space nerds out there find us. Fabulous. Shall we get into yeah. our sources now? Let's do it. Do you want to go first? Sure. So for my sources, I use the uh, NASA science website, nasa.gov, for... Uh, some articles about gravity assists. I also use some Wikipedia pages for Delta V budget. Um, I used a YouTube video, Flyby Trajectories, Delta V and Gravity Assists. I'll have that linked in the sources. Uh, I found another article from planetary.gov, uh, planetary.org about home and transfer orbits. Um, I read another article in Scientific American about slingshot effect and how it can be used to change the orbit of a spacecraft. 
another YouTube video about gravity assist, a Wikipedia page about orbital maneuvers, uh, space mission analysis and design, and another YouTube video about why doesn't the moon fall to the earth, exploring orbits and gravity. And that's the video <laughs> where you'll see the, uh, the fabric over the hula hoop that I was talking about. So cool. I'll have that linked. If you're interested in more of a breakdown of orbits, we talk about it more in the space elevator episode we did. Yes, that's right. That's one of our I earlier for... episodes. Yeah, it was one of our first ones, I think. I want to say it's number five. But if you want to check that out, we re- we we break down orbits. But nice. Cool. Sweet. How about you, Anna? What were your sources? Oh, right. I have all about Yuri Kondrakyuk. And then I got from AmericanHouse.com. And I got... Oh, <laughs> I was like, what is this? I have that history brief from NASA I talked about, about his paper. Telling people they sh- should read it. I have a Wikipedia page about Frederick Sander. I have interestingengineering.com, which was 11 influential inventions from the 1920s that you should definitely know about. That's where I found out that tidbit about traffic lights. Sweet. I have about the Backnor Cosmodrome, a Wikipedia page. I have the Wikipedia page of Title Locking, which has all those really gay- great GIFs on it, if you would like a visual. I have a Wikipedia page, a NASA page, all about Luna 3 orbiter. An ARS Technica article all about Luna 3. This was a, that was a really good article. I really liked that one. I have one from Cool Cosmos. It's a, actually a Caltech page that talks about how far Earth is from Mercury. Or Mercury is from Earth. I have a Space.com page about the distance from Earth to Venus. I have a NASA page which discusses Mariner 10. And then I have a bunch of pages from ESA about the physical man, Giuseppe Beppe Colombo. And then about the orbiter. Beppe Colombo. I have a couple other ESA websites about that, and then I have a JAXA website about it. Awesome! Alright, shall we close it out, Anna? My favorite part. Let's do it. Until next time, space cadets. T-minus three, two, one, liftoff!